0: Welcome to Open Your Eyes, the podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. I'm McKay Christensen, and I'm thrilled you joined us today. This podcast may be a bit different from others you listen to. It's not a daily news podcast, it's not crime junkie, or it's not dedicated to a social cause. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life, and the deep belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. So hopefully today, this podcast can give you a new perspective, a fresh paradigm, and empower you with tools to think and live better. And if you find something useful here today, share the link to this podcast with a friend. It just may be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about living without a doubt. Denali is the highest mountain peak in North America, with a summit elevation of 20,310 feet. It's located in Alaska, and in 1896, a prospector named it Mount McKinley after the presidential candidate, William McKinley. And it wasn't until recently that the mountain was once again referred to as Denali. McKinley was a Republican. He presided over the Spanish-American War, gained control of Hawaii and Puerto Rico, and won a second term in office. However, just months into that term, he was scheduled to give a speech at an expo in Buffalo, New York. He delivered his speech to a crowd of 50,000. Waiting in the crowd that day was Leon Zolgos. Leon hoped to assassinate McKinley, but couldn't get close enough to him that day. However, the next day, as the president entered the Temple of Music, Leon shot McKinley at close range, and while the president survived for several days, he would eventually succumb to his injuries and die. Waiting in the wings was the vice president. That vice president was Theodore Roosevelt. But he had only been VP for a matter of months. The elected VP... Garrett Hobart had passed away from a heart attack and Roosevelt, who was serving as the governor of New York, would be selected as vice president. And with the passing of McKinley just months into office, Theodore Roosevelt became the 26th president at the age of 43. Roosevelt served the rest of McKinley's term and then was elected to his first term. In 1909, when that term was done, he could have run for a third term but chose not to. Four years later, however, he wasn't satisfied with President Taft and he made a run at the presidency, but he was not elected. So given that, why is Theodore Roosevelt one of the four presidents on Mount Rushmore? What did he do that was so remarkable? I mean, Washington won the Revolutionary War, Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence, and Lincoln led the nation through Civil War, but why Theodore Roosevelt? Well, Roosevelt provided critical leadership when America experienced extreme rapid economic growth as it entered the 20th century. He won the Nobel Peace Prize by negotiating peace with the Russo-Japanese War, and he established meat safety standards, five national parks, including the Grand Canyon, worked to keep inflation low, and he was instrumental in negotiating the construction of the Panama Canal, linking the East and the West. He also led the U.S. Navy to be the strongest in the world. He famously said, The first requisite of a good citizen in this republic of ours is that he shall be able and willing to pull his weight, that he shall not be a mere passenger. One lesser-known fact of Roosevelt's life is what happened after he stepped away from politics. He decided to accept the invitation to do a speaking tour in South America. However, he decided once he got to Brazil, before speaking, he would go on a journey that was part holiday and part scientific endeavor. He teamed up with a veteran Brazilian guide and set out to travel and chart the River of Doubt, which hadn't yet been mapped. The river runs through what is today the Campos Amazonas Coast National Park, and is about 470 miles long. Even today, much of the river is in dense, remote rainforests. The expedition started with a small army of porters, Roosevelt, his son Kermit, and a number of scientists. However, delays and illness crippled the team. By the time they reached the River of Doubt, the 22 man party was reduced to just three Americans, including Roosevelt. The conditions were extreme, the rain relentless. They traveled in dugout canoes were attacked by indigenous people, endured the relentless mosquitoes and stinging flies. The journey began on calm waters, but they hit dozens of miles of tortuous rapids. Many places were impassable. The men were forced to either shoot the white water in their canoes or carry the boats on their backs through the jungle. Their progress slowed to a plodding seven miles per day. They had to repeatedly stop and build new canoes after several were destroyed during crossings. Most of the pack animals died. One particular day, Kermit's canoe was sucked into a whirlpool and sent tumbling over a waterfall. He and a companion managed to swim to shore, but the third man, a Brazilian named Simplicio, drowned in the rushing rapids. Roosevelt would lose a quarter of his body weight and had emergency leg surgery, and he would be plagued for the rest of his life from the injuries that he sustained on the trip. A few years later, he died in a sleep. Death had to take him sleeping, Vice President Thomas Marshall said at the time. For if Roosevelt had been awake, there would have been a fight. Now, I find it fascinating that Roosevelt, who had done so much in his life, took as his last challenge the river of doubt. And this expedition was tough physically to say the least. Not long before the trip to Brazil, Roosevelt had given a speech in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A 36-year-old New York bartender shot Roosevelt in the chest. The bartender feared that Roosevelt would run for a third term and wanted to avoid a monarchy, so he said, in the U.S. Well, with a bullet still in his chest, at the age of 55, Roosevelt took on the river of doubt. I think we all, whether we're 35 or 55 or 75, must, at some point in time, travel our river of doubt. And what is that river? Well, you may be familiar with it. We doubt we can. We doubt someone else. We doubt our own ability. We doubt our choices. We doubt that circumstances are fate or heaven's gaze will ever turn our way. But here's what I've learned about doubt. Sooner or later, you have to travel the path. You have to put things to the test. Doubt is a state of uncertainty or lack of conviction about something in which you question, hesitate, or are skeptical about what you hear or about what you or others are doing. And in your life right now, what do you doubt? Perhaps politicians. Perhaps you have doubt in a relationship. That person may not do or be or act as you want to believe they can. Perhaps you doubt yourself at times. I do. Can I follow through and do what I set out to do? Can I really become better despite the habits or obstacles in my way? You know, some typical doubts sound like this. I can't change. I don't deserve to. I'm too old to begin. If I do, I'll look stupid or pathetic or crazy. My talents aren't of use or as valued as the talents of others are. I've tried before. It won't be worth a try. Now, the problem with doubts is while they can inspire you to investigate or clarify, they mostly can and do hinder our progress. Doubt can also be challenging or unsettling. It may create a sense of unease, indecision, or internal conflict. And this can paralyze our action and cause us to doubt ourselves even more and block our most positive self from leading our life. You know, psychology has long examined the role of doubt in our lives. In short, doubt is like a cloud in our lives. I don't know if you've ever driven through thick fog, but it can be quite scary. You see, you can't see the next turn. You feel unsettled. You slow down and be really careful, and it takes all of your concentration and your energy. And typically, when driving in good conditions, you can drive and think about something else or listen to the radio. But in fog, you don't do either while driving. Now, the same holds true for a pilot flying in the clouds. He or she must focus more, use their instruments with faith that they're accurate and pay more attention to their flying. Doubt does similar things in our life. It robs us of our concentration and our focus and our energy. Not long ago, the American Psychological Association published a fascinating study about doubt conducted by several Ohio State University professors. And here's what they said the role of doubt is in our lives. They said, we all have a self-view, the way we see ourselves. And the way we see ourselves, or this self-concept, does influence our choices and behavior. For example, people who are certain that they are funny and lazy are likely to choose situations in which they can be funny and lazy. And the process of how we arrive at our self-concept is a long-debated and researched topic. But it is a fact that whether you have consciously thought about your self-concept or not, you have one, and it guides your life. Much of your belief window is made up of your self-concept. And if I were to ask you to describe your self-concept or self-view, how would you describe it? Well, We're all trying to find out or discover or define our self-view. Well, in these research studies, the researchers proved that they can manipulate a person's self-view by asking participants to describe three times in which they acted in a way that was consistent with their identified traits. Then participants were given a test. What they learned was when people were reminded of behaving consistent with their self-view, they did better on the test. Isn't that interesting that a simple reminder of your self-concept and being true to that concept can give you strength to be better, to be more like yourself? The same researchers describe doubt, like I said, like a cloud hanging over our self-concept. In order to act, if we doubt, We have significantly higher levels of information processing going on in our brain, and this causes us to slow down and use our think time that might otherwise be used for something else. In one study, participants were primed to doubt by being asked to write times in which they were sad and uncertain or sad and certain. Then they were presented a video message about purchasing a product. Those that were asked to think about times when they were uncertain in the past used significantly more time trying to decide whether to make the purchase or not. Those that were reminded of times in which they were certain made the purchase more easily. And while this is a small test, in some really big ways, doubt has this type of effect on you and me. When we're in a river of doubt, we overthink we process, we stew, we reconsider, and use up our energy and focus. And this cloud of doubt extends to other things in our life as well. Studies show that people who doubt are less articulate, exercise poor judgment, are less motivated, can't discriminate as well, take fewer risks, and tend to think of themselves as less capable. So, if all of this is true, then how do we push doubt out of our self view? And live more confidently. And if we have children who may also have doubt clouding their view, how do we help them? Well, the first key to removing doubt is to become aware of when and how we doubt. This self-awareness can help us recognize the role doubt is having in our life. This awareness will likely give us the sense for what we need to change. As Cheryl Sandberg said, "We cannot change what we are not aware of. And once we are aware, we cannot help but change. And doubt often comes about when we've tried before without success, or we are re-entering new territory without a familiar path to walk. If you've been divorced, you know it takes a while before you stop doubting your own ability to relate to others in a healthy way. But being aware of this fact can help you challenge your thinking and put on a healthy dose of reality that... You are able to develop and maintain good relationships. The second thing to remember is that we often inherit faith or doubt from others. I mean, hang out with faith-filled people for a while, you get more faith. Hang out with doubters, you may tend to be more of a doubter yourself. This is also a concept proven by research. Now, parents or team leaders, this is a very important fact to remember. Doubt is inheritable Another important principle is this It's okay to doubt from time to time Just don't set up shop there and live You know, perhaps the most famous doubter of all time is Doubting Thomas I'm sure you've heard that phrase before Doubting Thomas How would you like your name associated with being doubtful For the entire world to refer to for thousands of years But that's what happened to Thomas, poor guy So here's the story that led to his famous doubting title. In the scripture, after Jesus dies and is resurrected, he appears to 10 of the disciples. He spoke to them and they saw him. And when they relate their experience to Thomas, who wasn't there, he said, Until I see him myself. And he went so far as to say, And I feel the print of the nails at his hands, I will not believe. Well, Eight days later, the apostles were all together, Thomas as well, and Jesus appears to them again. The Lord calls Thomas and says, come, reach out, fill the prince in my hands. And he shows himself to Thomas. Then he says to Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and believe. Now, here's the thing. How can you blame Thomas for doubting? It is an incredible thing to suppose that a person could rise from the dead. Even if his friends said they saw Christ, it's hard to believe that it actually happened. It's funny, isn't it? Many of us doubt what others do not doubt. Some people, like my mother who has since passed, believe that they will live after death just like Jesus did, and she believed that she will live again eternally that this life that she was living on earth is just a glimpse of her total existence. She knew it and lived accordingly. But others doubt if this is real, and it's understandable to doubt. I mean, what happens at death is a question we all have. And it does seem incredible to think that death is only temporary, just as Thomas had doubt of this very same thing. But there is a good lesson that we can learn from Thomas, and his doubt. First, he wasn't there with the others when they first saw Jesus. I don't know why he wasn't there, but he wasn't. But here's what I know, that being present, showing up, living outside of ourselves, being willing to go and do, removes doubt in our life. We get to see and feel with our own eyes the more we show up. And it's no wonder someone who never goes to church has less faith in God. And it's no wonder a member of your team who never comes to team meetings doubts whether they or you or your team can do what you have set out to do. When you're there, you have less doubt. And less doubt means you stopped driving in fog or flying in the clouds, and you can focus on what's most important. The other thing we learned from Thomas's experience is this, and it has always had an impact on my thinking. God didn't leave him in doubt. You see, God cares enough about us to encourage and even at times facilitate our faith. Thomas was and is important to him. He was part of his team. And the Lord was there to build Thomas's faith, to help to build him into a man of faith. That is the role of much of what heaven does. Build faith and remove doubt. And as a result, while Thomas doubted for eight days, he didn't set up shop there and remain in doubt. He left his doubt behind. Now, as a leader of your team, your role is not to leave your people in doubt. Do you have team members who doubt? Do they doubt whether your business will work? Do they doubt whether they can do it? Do they doubt the company or any other thing? If so, it's your job to build their faith, show them that they can. And this perhaps is one of the greatest characteristics of really good leaders to build faith. You know, I find in my organization that building faith in people and in our mission and in other team members is almost my full-time job. It takes planning, organizing, and being willing to value the individual. It takes the listening to know where they're coming from and validating them in the place in which they stand. It includes a constant repeat of our mission, of their value, and of the path that we're walking to our end goal. So, if you feel a bit weary in building faith in your children or your team or yourself, remember, it is a divine job that can and does change people for good. Okay, so back to our question. How do you remove doubt and build faith? Well, the research we cited earlier gives us some clues. First, the research showed that people who have their self-concept Affirmed regularly, have less doubt. I know it sounds simple, but so few of us affirm others like we could. Imagine the gift you give with a little affirmation. And the research showed that while you give affirmations, and they may be completely unrelated to the topic at hand, they still have an impact. Affirm your team's faith, affirm your children's talent, their questions, action. Steps to become better, learning and affirm their initiative, bring all the positive emotion you can to what they do. I know when I'm affirmed, I feel more capable. Affirmations widen our span of attention. They deepen our strength or resolve. In psychology, the Losada effect is the ratio of positive emotion to negative during the day. This ratio claims that strong teams had a Losada ratio of three to one of positive to negative emotions. This was extrapolated to people and families and other situations, suggesting that this three to one ratio is evident, is present in families and teams with greater outcomes. Meaning when there's three positive to one negative emotions in your daily culture, you will find greater success. I buy into the concept 100%. From what I've experienced in my own leadership and life, the ratio of 3 to 1 is a great target to keep in mind. So remember to eliminate doubt, affirm, and create this 3 to 1 positive ratio on your team. Just a few weeks ago, the NBA had its annual draft. The draft, as you know, is where teams line up and select players seeking to enter the league who will play for their team. The airwaves are filled with talk and experts pontificating about what combinations of talent will lead teams to a championship. Everything is analyzed. Players' height, shooting percentage, ability to drive to the basket, attitude, mental smarts, and on and on. You see, building a good team isn't as simple as drafting the best shooter. It's complicated. And why is it complicated? Because over time, championship teams have sometimes been made from the best players and at other times achieved by the players that aren't the best, but worked best as a team. Not long ago, the Brooklyn Nets spent a lot of money to bring the best players in the NBA onto one team. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden all on the same team. The result? They didn't win. And there are a host of examples that talent alone does not make the difference. So assembling a team has to do with the culture you create. It has to do with the affirmations you give. It has to do with the faith you promote. Do you have a doubting culture in your family or on your team? Do players have faith in each other? These are critical questions to ask and answer. As the saying goes about teams and faith, Feed their faith and their doubts will starve to death. You know, self-doubt in yourself or on your team can arise based on the environment in which we find ourselves. Some people develop self-doubt because they look around and all they see is negative patterns. In our society, economically disadvantaged kids can easily doubt their ability to go to college because many people around them drop out of high school. They get pregnant early and don't break the mold. So you see, it's easy to doubt based on your environment. So the lesson here is create the environment of faith. Next, research shows that the language you use with others and with yourself is a huge factor in whether you doubt or don't. Earlier this year, Manuel Ranoque, who lived in an indigenous reserve in Porto Sabalo, had been forced to flee his community in the Amazon after receiving threats from crime groups in that part of Colombia. He was related to a political leader who was at odds with these crime groups. So he trekked out of the jungle and into Bogota, where he worked saving money for several months to pay for his family's transport out of the remote community. He hired a pilot and a Cessna 206 small engine aircraft to fly his wife and four children to Bogota to meet him. The pilot picked up the passengers on a remote landing strip, and they started their flight over the jungle. Well, not long into the flight, the pilot radioed air control that he was having trouble with his engine. And not long after that, he sent another distress call that the plane was going down. Aboard the plane was 13-year-old Leslie, 9-year-old Solini, 4-year-old Tien Noriel, and 11-month-old Kristen. The plane dove into the southern Columbia jungle. It tore through the trees, which helped break the fall of the plane, and slammed into the ground. Because of the remote location, the search to locate the wreckage took days and days. Indigenous searchers located the wreckage first, followed by Colombian army commandos. When they arrived at the plane wreckage, it was obvious the plane had impacted the ground nose first. Much of the nose of the plane was unrecognizable. There they found three dead bodies, the pilot, an indigenous leader, and the children's mother, Magdalena Muto, but the four children were nowhere to be found. Where they had gone was a mystery. And because the tail of the plane was intact, they were hopeful that the children had survived. Because it was obvious, the further away from the nose of the plane you were, the likelihood of survival would have been higher. Well, the children were in extreme terrain. Thick vegetation, horrific weather conditions, dangerous animals like jaguars, venomous snakes, and poisonous plants, Were all huge obstacles to their survival Plus it rained about 16 hours a day The bugs and mosquitoes were thick and relentless And carried disease Immediately, 11 aircraft and hundreds of people Started the search for the missing children Three miles from the aircraft The searchers found a baby bottle Days later, they found a pair of scissors Tennis shoes that belonged to a baby And a child's footprint in the mud It was obvious the children were moving As the search went on, days turned into more days, 30, 35 days, 39 days passed without finding the children or their remains. Surely, after 40 days, they couldn't have survived, right? But on day 40, sure enough, as they trekked their way through the jungle, searchers came around a band and saw 13-year-old Leslie holding an infant, 9-year-old Soliani was horrifically skinny, And when the children saw the men coming their way, they simply said they were hungry. When asked while they walked and how they survived, the oldest daughter simply said, we believed we could find a way. Their mother, you see, had survived the plane crash for four days. And before she died, she told them that they could get out of the jungle. They told them they had a great life waiting for them and that their father would love them like she had loved them. So after staying with the plane for a week or two, they launched out on their own. Leslie fed the baby formula she took from the crash site. And when the formula was gone, she fed her water. The other siblings survived on berries and seeds they found on the jungle floor. And it just so happened that the jungle was in harvest and the jungle fruit was sometimes falling to the ground. The children stayed by the river so they had a source of water. And Leslie said they did what their mom told them and didn't doubt that her words that she had spoken to them were true. You know, sometimes life drops us off in places outside of our comfort zone. Sometimes we have to walk in ways that we're not used to. Sometimes we have to place faith in and not doubt the words that parents and leaders and God speak to us. And even when we are 40 days into our wilderness, we still must have faith that rescue, that strength, that help is coming. Now, I'm not sure what doubt enters into your life from time to time. But as one great man said, before you doubt anything, doubt your doubts. And remember, most often doubt is removed by action. Which leads us to our final suggestion for removing doubt from our life. Act. Move forward. Even if the path isn't clear, action feeds your faith. You know, just recently I was watching a documentary And a tennis player who had lost a very important match responded to the question about her perspective after her loss. Do you know what her answer was? She said, I am right where I am supposed to be. She knew that work and practice and learning from her failures would help her rise. She was right where she was supposed to be. Even after a loss, she was right where she was supposed to be. And maybe you are as well. Maybe despite the jungle of challenges that you're facing, you are right where you are supposed to be. Maybe your business has slowed down and you're still where you're supposed to be. Maybe you've been given those challenges to test your faith, to see if you can. As Jesus told Thomas, doubt not, but be believing. Maybe you're to rely on your faith to help you through this point in your life so that later that faith will be stronger So you can do bigger and greater things. In my experience, it's true that doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. So shake off the doubt that may be in your thinking or your life or your business. Stop doubting your business partners. Treat them with faith. Lead with faith. Build faith. Diminish doubt. Don't let doubt become a part of your nature. For some of you, you've been doubting yourself for years, and it hasn't worked. Try affirming yourself and filling your thoughts with faith and see what happens. Remember, at some point in our life, like Roosevelt, we have to face our river of doubt. We must travel it and leave it behind us. And the first step to removing doubt is to become aware of when and how we doubt. Also, we often inherit faith or doubt from others. So give your team and family a good inheritance. And remember, Thomas, God will be there to finish your faith, to remove your doubt if you show up for him and for your goals and for your family. So be present and you will find you can live more faithful and you can live without a doubt. Most of all, thanks for being here today and be sure to join us next week as we discover the next steps to opening your eyes to who and what you can become. I look forward to being with you again soon.